Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to episode number four in our exclusive series called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump where America's leading psychiatrists and psychologists assess the serious issues surrounding Donald Trump's mental health problems and the danger he poses to the country and the world. In three previous episodes, we've looked at Donald Trump himself, his narcissism, his insatiable ego, his paranoia, his obsessive name-calling and bullying, his inability to deal with criticism, his nonstop lying and his living in denial, all of which has now been confirmed by two Trump family members, his niece, Mary Trump, in her scathing new book, Too Much and Never Enough, and now Trump's own sister, Marianne Trump Barry, who says Trump has no principles and cares only about himself. As if that's not bad enough, with the help of two leading mental health experts, today we turn to the related question of how Donald Trump's own mental imbalance has impacted the mental health of all the rest of us. Is he making us paranoid? Is he driving us crazy? Today's guests have studied and written extensively about this issue. Dr. Jennifer Panning, licensed clinical psychologist with the Mindful Psychological Association in Evanston, Illinois, and Harper West, licensed psychotherapist with the Great Lakes Psychology Group in Clarkston, Michigan. Dr. Panning, Harper West, thank you both for joining us today on the uh, Bill Press Pod. Uh, let me start out by saying, you know, for the last three weeks, uh, talking to some of your colleagues, We've been exploring issues with Donald Trump's own mental health. In this episode with you, we'd like to look at how, if rather, and how Donald Trump's mental imbalance has impacted the mental health of all the rest of us. So let me ask you each, and Dr. Panning, start with you. Uh, in dealing with your patients, have you seen any sign of what we might call a Trump post-traumatic stress syndrome? Yes, um, absolutely. I work, I'm in clinical practice as a psychologist in Evanston, Illinois, which is a very progressive community just north of the city of Chicago. Um, and so all of my clients are progressive like me. So uh, there is certainly a bias there, but absolutely. I saw a lot of, you know, stress and anxiety leading up to the election of 2016 um, but afterwards, it's been quite a volatile ride for many people who are tuned in and who are watching and noticing and concerned about the president's uh, mental health and the impact of anxiety and chaos and stress that we've been all sort of um, 
witnessing in the past three and a half years. And you, in fact, have coined the phrase Trump anxiety disorder. Um, how do you see that manifest itself? Yeah, I see it in many ways. Um, you know, anxiety and anxiety disorder is characterized by um, symptoms that are both psychological in nature as well as physical. So psychological meaning ruminations, worries, um, constant thoughts of what might happen next, as well as physical symptoms such as um, physiologically feeling agitated, um, muscle tension, headaches, stomach aches, all sorts of different symptoms that can come back to anxiety. So in a traditional generalized anxiety disorder, um, it's a constellation of symptoms. And for somebody to be diagnosed with that, um, for the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual that therapists use, they have to be experiencing many of these symptoms for six months. So that is generalized anxiety disorder. Trump anxiety disorder is not an official diagnosis. It is more of a phenomenon that we've noticed since um, Trump has been, well, I guess after the election and certainly after he's been in office, um, but more characterized in things like having a constant worry about the future, um, feeling very on edge and dread about what might happen next, um, more of a uh, being concerned with a lot of media impact in terms of scrolling on Facebook or Twitter, watching the news much more than, than normal, um, and being very consumed and, and concerned about what might happen next. I think what we're seeing you know, with Trump's history here as our president is a feeling of this is not right, this is not normal behavior, and what's going to happen next? So with COVID, I think there's a, certainly a whole other layer that we've seen with concern around Trump anxiety, um, given the failures of his leadership, given the outright denial, the um, backtracking, not listening to scientists, wanting to go full steam ahead without consulting with experts. So I think there's a different layer now that, that COVID is, is here and how that's impacted many Americans. Um, but I think for general, progressive Americans are feeling scared. They're feeling fearful. They're feeling dread. They're not sure what's going to happen next. And it is having a serious impact on their general psychological health on a daily, you know, day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and Harper West, what has been your experience with your clients? Have you experienced the same? The, yes, very much the same. I'm not in quite a liber as liberal an area, a little more of a purple area of a purple state in Michigan, but uh, definitely throughout Donald Trump's presence on the national stage. I found a lot of people you know, sort of being re-traumatized by his voice and his demeanor. I work with a lot of victims of abusive and narcissistic relationships because that's my specialty. And for them, in, in Trump, they uh, become anxious when they hear and see him and, and watch his behaviors because it reminds them of their perhaps abusive parent or abusive spouse that, they're, they're, that they've had experience with. And then, yes, I agree, since the COVID pandemic and then since the George, George Floyd murder, we've seen, I think, a dramatic increase in the number of people just sort of voluntarily mentioning that they just feel more anxious and on edge. And as Jennifer said, the, you know, kind of this dread, this sense of uh, doom that they experience um, is, is more prevalent. And do they um, relate it to their own personal lives, their own personal experience? I, I think they do. I mean, certainly with COVID, people have, you know, specific losses that they can attribute to. I have had patients, right. you know, had people die or lost their job or had a wedding they can't, you know, attend or something. Um, but 
you know, they, you know, many people, they, they see for eggs instance, the sense that, uh, you know, black lives are being destroyed or harmed. And, and that is a personal issue for them. Um, they feel very betrayed by their leaders in this country, not working in their best interest. Um, and so I think people do relate to it very personally. Mm-hmm. You know, Harper, I just had a session this morning with a client, um, a mother of two. And she told me, she said, you know, I feel like I'm in a nightmare um, in terms of this presidency. And I'm, she's been talking, you know, obviously more, and many of my clients have been talking more about the upcoming election and just the stress. And I think there is some trauma, traumatic reaction from 2016 when, you know, everybody thought it was sort of a done deal that Hillary Clinton would be the president and um, how everything changed on that election night. Um, But I think people are really struggling and really fearful about what it might mean to have him become reelected. And to what extent does um, uncertainty factor uh, in all of this? Isn't that something that people kind of count on from their government or from society in general? I think so. I, you know, believe people want a predictable, solid, dependable leader who, who they can predict what they're, what's going to happen. And of course, with Trump, boy, you don't know what his opinion is from day to day to tweet to tweet, right? I mean, he changes his mind, um, whether it's intentionally or impulsively or with a lie, it's hard to say. Um, so I think that there is a great deal of distress of just not knowing what the, the country, where the country's headed in terms of policy or any other way. And it's, it is distressing. Well, you know, I read uh, in The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump now, when it was first published in 2017, that one half of the country felt uh, stress and uh, anxiety uh, about Donald Trump's presence uh, in the White House, which leads me to wonder, What's wrong with the other half? Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know whether it's a higher percentage now, but um, for some people, is it just like a cult worship of a strong leader that that they they're comfortable with? Or have you thought about that? I think there's definitely some brainwashing involved in, in this whole process. I mean, you know, Trump does have the characteristics of a charismatic leader um, and uses psychological strategies like, you know, lock her up and different, you know, very basic chants that appeal at fear and emotion. Um, I do think there's also people who have, you know, still support him for a variety of reasons, like religious people who are, you know, very concerned about abortion as a right, right? And they, you know, um, support the Republican Party and whatever candidate that, that comes along with it. And I do know there's people that, you know, business owners and things, people that are concerned about their own small world, um, that they're still supporting of Donald Trump. But I think it is perplexing, you know, when people see just the the confusion and the chaos and the absolute um, destruction that he's, you know, enabled in our country that the people still do support him. Yeah. Harper, does that uh, concern you? I mean, that that what for some people is um, a source of much stress and anxiety for others is sort of um, what a comfort maybe. It is a difficult, you know, thing to understand. Uh, Certainly again, yeah, with my population, they're very traumatized by Trump. Um, But I think we can look at this too from a sense of, you know, right. Some people are very morally outraged 
by his behaviors and, and other people aren't. And certainly this can be part of an understanding that people do have different morals. Um, but some people also just don't really uh, have a sense of uh, what we call pro-social behaviors and pro-social attributes. And so they're really not, uh, those people are really morally outraged by Trump because they have a more of a sense of caring about their fellow human beings. People on the anti-social end of the spectrum don't really care about their fellow human beings so much. So they are not as morally outraged by Trump because they, they align with him in that way. And they actually believe that we shouldn't care about our fellow human beings in the way that the pro-social people do. And that's uh, a broad, broad issue that I think falls into play here. Uh, Jennifer, what happened to the um, belief that we're all in this together? (laughs) I mean, you know, that's I think that's a very scary, a scary time right now that we're living in that we're more divided than I think ever. Um, I was talking to my mom the other day who used to be Republican until Obama was elected and switched parties and. You know, I said, Mom, is, is, you know, what is what was it like going through the Cold War ages and all the stressors in the past? And she said, you know, it just feels different now. It feels much more scary and divisive and divided than ever before. Um, you know, I, I think one thing to add on what Harper talked about is the media. I think, you know, if you look at, if you listen to Fox News, you think like we're in this like, you know, horrible state of, Um, Marxism and socialism taking over this country and there's so much fear and there's so much, um, it feels like a different universe that they're talking about. Uh, Whereas if you listen to, you know, other, other news sources. So I think there's something that's been also, you know, soaked with that is that people, if they have a family and friends that are all conservative, then they're all listening to Fox news and they're, they're worried. There's a defensive reactive part to that of not, being proactive and what, where are we going next? But, oh my gosh, they're going to take away your guns and take away your rights and the socialists are taking over the country and things like that. So that all, I think, contributes to this um, this disconnect in our country. Uh, both of you speak about the role of the media, and I'm going to get back to that uh, in just a couple of minutes. But before we do, um, Harper, you, you, you mentioned anger in in, in a blog that you recently posted, you talked about, I believe it was there at any rate, you talked about one of the best responses, one of the best ways to respond to Trump is indignation, right? Um, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? What do you mean? Sure. Yes, I've written about this in journal articles and other places. Um, I, I love this word indignation, and I often work with victims of, of abusive and narcissistic uh, relationships to try and get them to be more indignant. It's a pro-social attribute that is self-protective when we are morally outraged when we have a, a sense of injustice we should become indignant and um this could be a really positive thing and it's again it's more pro-social because it's about setting boundaries and, and caring for ourselves with with uh, healthy boundaries and i think a lot of people that i see experience a sense of indignation when they look at trump they get morally outraged um, especially if they've experienced any kind of childhood abuse or neglect, and that was a feeling they had as a child that they couldn't express their outrage or indignation at a, at a parent or abuser. But now they see this man in the White House who's behaving in very abusive ways, who's betraying the country, he's betraying the Constitution, he's violating social norms, and they become indignant. And um, this is what I see in a lot of people, and 
it can feel like anger, but I think it's a healthy form of anger. It can promote activism and, and a sense of self-efficacy of being able to care for ourselves because we can protect ourselves. Uh, so in other words, it's good to get pissed off, right? And then <laughs> to do something about it. Jennifer? Correct. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a, a huge part of this, right? Use the anger to propel and get involved and, you know, get activated and, and not, you know, see that we have hope in terms of people being able to speak out and, you know, do talk to people in swing states and write postcards or text banking or phone banking or all the different things we can do to, to help get out um, the word to vote. But you're, but if we, if we just sit with that anger, that anger is going to destroy us. And, um, you know, I know Harper has written prolifically around this as well, but just the feeling that we're trapped in this abusive relationship with our president. Right. And, um, someone like a child, we, we can't escape because hopefully we will have an escape in November. But until then, you know, even though he's been impeached, even though there have been so many things that we thought the Mueller report, other instances where we thought there would be some hope to, to have him out or have things change dramatically that hasn't happened. Yep. So that anger needs to be either, um, channeled into something uh, pro-social and productive and or, you know, being able to take care of ourselves, exercise, um, make sure getting enough sleep. Maybe we have an outlet of some sort that we're able to channel that energy so it doesn't destroy ourselves in the process. Uh, Jennifer, you you use the phrase uh, that, uh, that Harper West has uh, added to this discussion, which is, um, I think, Harper, you quoted one of your clients as saying, I feel like I'm in an abusive relationship with the president of the United States. Uh, and you point out there are many parallels between Trump's behavior and an abusive spouse's behavior, correct? Correct. Well, there are a number of uh, behaviors that abusers engage in, and we can think of this, again, using even just the term antisocial as a, as a spectrum. And um, one of the behaviors that antisocial types of personalities do is they violate the rights of others. And that's sort of, sort of a form of abuse, of course, right? And it can take a lot of different flavors. You know, this could be just mild lying and, and cheating, or it can be, you know, very predatory and violent. But that sense that somebody is violating our boundaries, taking advantage of us, taking uh, uh, violating our rights, that's kind of what abusive behavior um, involves. And it can, again, take lots of different forms. And, and many people in Trump, they get triggered because they, he just reminds them of abusive people that they've had in their life. And that was my experience when I first ran into Trump, I, I really didn't pay a lot of attention to him. I didn't watch any of his TV shows or, you know, I'm not a big celebrity watcher. And when I first started seeing him come out on the campaign trail, I had this sort of visceral reaction to him. It was just repulsive. I was just disgusted because he reminded me of abusive people and narcissistic people that I've either been in relationships with or that I've treated. And it's deeply disturbing to those of us who can spot that that type of personality. I was going to say, usually we work with the victims. You know, we don't work with the, the narcissists and the folks who are antisocial. Typically, uh, we will work with their loved ones, their significant others, their children, their business partners, their coworkers, because they are distressed and confused and you know these um, folks are using tactics like gaslighting you know which is a tactic for people to start doubting what they see in front of their very faces in terms of 
very, you know, fact-based information that an abusive tactic is to start questioning them. Oh no, that's not happening. And not only is that not happening, you're crazy for thinking so. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why you call Trump the gaslighter in chief. (laughs) Many people have used that phrase. I I saw uh, uh, again in one of your chapters there in the book that this, and you call them other blamers, the abuser, not the, not the victim. Right. right. Other right. blamers that th- that some of the b- behavior traits uh, and I just wrote them all down uh, include vindictive anger, lack of insight and accountability, dishonesty, impulsive, impulsivity, entitlement, paranoia, lack of remorse and empathy, self-importance and attention seeking. I mean, bingo. Right. That's right. Donald check, Trump. Check, right. Check, check, check. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's and then I wrote that you know three and a half years ago or whatever and it's all come true we've seen all of those behaviors play out on a daily basis and yeah that's the kind of the core of the narcissistic personality or antisocial personality or what I call an other blamer is that lack of accountability that leads to all of those very unhealthy antisocial behaviors uh, and Jennifer, which gets back to the question, and you said you treat mostly you're dealing with the victims, right, not the abuser. Uh, how does the victim respond to that kind of behavior? Well, I mean, a lot of it is disconnecting from it, you know, learning how to set up healthy boundaries, um, learning how to identify a situation that can turn volatile before it becomes very volatile. So that might be as simple as saying, okay, sorry, this, this conversation's over. Uh, with a conversation or it might be physically leaving the location if it's starting to escalate and not feel safe. I mean, a lot of the literature with working with um, uh, narcissistic or antisocial folks is is not great in terms of prognosis, right? Um, And they're often, as I mentioned earlier, not the ones that are seeking therapy. The loved ones um, of these folks are. And so the loved ones, it's often like cutting off contact, you know, divorcing, a significant a spouse or cutting off contacts, estranging from a family member or figuring out what kind of framework they can have a healthy, a healthy-ish relationship, meaning, you know, they may need to have very strict boundaries, you know, in terms of contact, how many times they, they see a family member, for instance, topics they can talk about and might have to be very surface level because anything else can, um, can set that person off. And that is un- unhealthy for everybody. So Harper, how do we extend that to Donald Trump and the American people breaking off contact? Well, certainly uh, some of us believe that voting him out of office would would be a a great start. (laughs) 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 Because, I mean, ultimately with that kind of personality, they don't change. As Jennifer said, they don't come into therapy and they don't ever change. So we have to manage the relationship and, and yeah, cutting, cutting it off. No contact is, is generally the, the preferred method. Um, some of us might've imp- preferred impeachment and conviction also as a, as a method to get rid of Trump or even the 25th amendment to get rid of Trump because he, I believe is unfit for office, but um, we're left now with uh, waiting for November 3rd. But also um, breaking off in, in, in terms of a spousal relationship and in the political relationship, sometimes easier said than done, correct? I mean, do we really believe that, it, uh, that, that the abuser uh, 
just accepts the break or that Donald Trump will just accept the break. Right. I've done some reading and some people believe that he won't go quietly. <laughs> he will, um, you know, cause a lot of trouble between the election day and the uh, inaugural day, inauguration day. And even after that, there are many people who suspect that he will continue to speak out on Twitter. He will incite his followers. He may buy a TV station and speak out on that TV station. So there is some concern that he won't go away. Uh, we will have to learn how to manage our reactions to that and not <laughs> engage with him. But that may not happen for everybody. So if we look at, if we see this behavior on the part of Donald Trump and these uh, character traits, um, a lot of people question uh, Donald Trump's upbringing, uh, his childhood, and what could have contributed to this. Now we have Mary Trump's book recently out. Uh, talking about her uncle, Donnie. Um, what do we learn from uh, his childhood as a contributor to the behavior uh, and the mental imbalance we see today? Uh, Jennifer, you want to tackle that first? I just finished Dr. Mary Trump's book, which I thought was excellent and incredible. Um, I think it's no surprise in terms of, you know, it's, it's actually very sad. And if he wasn't in the most powerful position in the world um, and just a businessman in New York as he, as he was before, I would have empathy for him given what he experienced. He, at age two, his mother was uh, significantly ill. They thought she was going to pass away. Uh, she, she survived, but she had, you know, that started off a, a, a pattern of being chronically ill and unavailable for the children. So they were raised by an older sibling and given you know, taken care of in terms of, of food and some basic needs by a housekeeper, but they, in terms of warmth and connection and mirroring and all those things that toddlers and children desperately need to form a cohesive psychological self, he lacked. Um, his, his father was also a sociopath, worked, you know, many hours, just didn't really emotionally attune to the kids because he didn't have the capacity to do so. So, all that is sort of classic, I think, in terms of developmental um, trauma that results in, in these sorts of personality pathologies. Harper? Yeah, exactly. No, that's right on. I agree, Jennifer, with all of that. The coldness and the lack of warmth in the family was notable. Um, I will add on, because of this framework that I use, I work around the emotion of shame a lot. And what we call poor shame tolerance is a core characteristic of people like Trump, who we would, again, label as sort of narcissistic, or what I use this other blamer title to, to identify that when they feel shame, they don't learn healthy ways to manage that, and they blame others. They engage in the list of behaviors that you that you read, Bill, um, and in, in that way, they become... Uh, the, the type of person that they are. And the core of that is they don't like to be held accountable. And I saw that a lot in Mary Trump's book, where there was a lot of struggle um, holding Donnie accountable when he was a kid. Um, Mom, I think, was weak and um, permissive or uh, just not present. And so she didn't help him learn to tolerate those feelings of inadequacy that all kids have. And then he was also not held accountable by his father, who... Um, alternate, I think, between very authoritarian styles of parenting and then also very permissive and enabling styles of parenting. We just didn't get uh, a good handle on handling this feeling of inadequacy that he's now carried into adulthood. 
And every time he now feels inadequate, he, he reacts in very poor ways, lashing out at others, etc. And here on the Bill Press Pod this, uh, this week, talking about uh, not only Donald Trump's mental health, but how Donald Trump's actions have impacted the mental health of uh, all of us Americans. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and resume our conversation with Dr. Jennifer Panning and with Harper West. And today's podcast with Dr. Jennifer Panning and Harper West is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the great Teamsters Union under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, the largest of America's unions, a real powerhouse with 1.4 million members, truck drivers, yes, but also public defenders in Minnesota, vegetable workers in California, sanitation workers in New York, newspaper workers in Seattle, construction workers in Las Vegas, and zookeepers in Pennsylvania. In fact, you name the job and most likely Teamsters represent them. Check out their website for more information at teamster.org. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with Dr. Jennifer Panning, Harper West, a licensed psychotherapist uh, in Clarkston, Michigan. Dr. Panning joining us from Evanston, Illinois. Uh, Dr. Panning, you mentioned earlier, um, I'd like to come back to the role of the media, because certainly if there is this anxiety in the age of Donald Trump, um, it is amplified and quickened uh, as never before by the ever-present, uh, non-stop, 24-7 world of the media, correct? Absolutely. 
And what's the answer? <laughs> to turn off the TV? <laughs> well, I mean, here, you know, we saw at the, the press conference last week, the journalist who posed the question to Trump of how something about, you know, how could he, how, is it okay for him to continue to lie to the American people? And Trump, you know, took a pause and ignored him and went on to the next question. You know, the press is in a really precarious position that probably they've never been in before in this very way. Um, in that they're, you know, they're used to like reporting the news, like we report the weather. And what I think they're called to now, what I think they, they should be doing is calling out these lies, not because it's going to change Donald Trump's, you know, reactions or behaviors in any way, but the American people need to hear that and need to know that they're not crazy, that they're seeing these lies that happen. And some, you know, members of the media have at times uh, stood up to him, but not enough. I think there needs to be united fronts so people, so we see this as Americans and we're, you know, comforted knowing that there's uh, understanding of reality rather than just a reporting of his behaviors. But Harper, I can't tell you how many friends of mine, including my own siblings, have told me, uh, you know, told me once Donald Trump was elected and since, I can't watch the news anymore. I just refuse to watch the news anymore. Basically, I'm, I, I don't want to hear about it. Don't want to know about it. Uh, is that realistic? Is that the answer? Yeah, this is this is tricky. I, I can relate because um, when he started to run and I was watching CNN and it became Trump TV 24-7, I literally canceled my cable subscription and stopped watching it. So I have, you know, I read about Trump and manage it the best way I can. And one of the things I advocate for, for my patients to do is, again, manage it. I don't think you can responsibly completely turn off. I think we as citizens need to know what's going on. Um, but I think there is some sort of limit to it and doom scrolling through, you know, your social media isn't helpful for most people. Um, so I think we have to take in the news that we need and and from sources that we can trust, but right. Uh, just, just listening to the fire hose of cable TV may not be very productive. That's so so right on, Harper, because I think, you know, what we're seeing, too, is with the chaos that Trump continually creates, um, there's always something, right? There's always something. And he gets that, that attention. He loves that attention, regardless if it's positive or negative. And so we're kind of, you know, it's easily it's easy for us to get swept up in that and think, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen next? And I need to know exactly what's happening next, because, you know, our, our rational minds try to understand this. We can't understand it at a rational level. Um, and we feel confused and we feel uh, there's so much chaos going on. And that's you know, certainly a strategy to help get people um, not trusting themselves and not trusting the, the fake news and the press and all of that. But it is destructive, you know, to not to be flooding ourselves in that because it's creating a lot of that trauma and stress physiology and re- reactions in our body that, that are harmful. We know chronic stress has true impacts on our physical health as well as our emotional health. And so being able to limit it and, you know, no trust that we'll, we'll know something really big happens, um, but not being able to get into the minutia of all the changing news. And I think COVID, George Floyd's murder and the upcoming election has just created even more so of just so much information and so much confusion and chaos. Right. I, I've worked with some younger people who have said, Bill, what you've, you know, you said, they just said, I can't do it. I'm going to, you know, cut off all 
all news. And I've, I've challenged them a little bit because I, I get it. We don't want to, again, have that fire hose of information coming, but I don't think it's healthy also to just play ostrich and, and you know, bury the head in the sand kind of thing. Um, I think it's healthy to be somewhat informed, right. And find that balance. Um, can't cut ourselves off completely from it and manage as, as Jennifer says, there's a lot of stress related to that, but then managing the stress, managing our reaction to it, I guess is what's important. But there's no doubt is there that the stress and anxiety that does exist because of Donald Trump is really amplified and multiplied by uh, this constant stream of media. If you think about it, you know, whether it's a daily newspaper or the network news or cable TV on all day long or the social media sites, right, or Donald Trump's tweets, right, it's hard to escape it on any level. Uh, but, and Jennifer, you mentioned uh, that the media has a responsibility here too, particularly when it comes to Donald Trump's lies. Let's talk about that. Um, uh, a little bit. It, first of all, is that, um, Harper, one of the signs of an abusive relationship, the the lying on the part of the other yes. blamers? other blamers. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's very much a core part of this, again, other blamer, what I call it, or narcissist. They don't like to be held accountable. So that core understanding is they don't handle shame, so they don't want to be held accountable. So when you hold them accountable, what do they do? They tend to divert away from the truth because the truth is painful for them. It's, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's a shaming. It's shaming. So they then divert and lie. They also like to feel good about themselves. They're very, uh, feel, have deep feelings of inadequacy, but they overcompensate by then lying about maybe their attributes, saying that they, you know, aced a simple cognitive exam or they graduated first in their class from college or something like Trump does, which are not supported by facts. And so the lying is very much a part of it. But one of the things we teach victims of narcissistic abuse is to hold them accountable. Now, this can cause a lot of problems. <laughs> they don't like it. They will push back against it, just as Trump does. What does he do? When he gets held accountable, he keeps blaming other people. He name calls, he belittles people, he engages in all these very unhealthy behaviors because he doesn't want to be held accountable. But this is really healthy. In fact, one of the things I want to see after the election, if he loses, is to have sort of a truth commission and hold him and his people accountable for the corruption and the self-dealing that they have engaged in. Because if we don't do that, future leaders will not learn from this lesson. And this is fundamental when you're dealing with a narcissist. If they think they're going to get away with it, they will get away with it. And they will keep behaving in these very unhealthy and toxic ways. So I think calling him out on, yeah, calling him out on his lying is absolutely essential to me. And they surround themselves with enablers um, and, you know, people who are complicit. And, you know, if you think about somebody in a, in a family with a narcissistic father, let's say, um, yelling at at a child, you know, if everyone else in the family is just silent and they're complicit in that and you know how powerful it is for a child to hear somebody else say, you know what, that's not okay. That's not okay to talk to her like that or whatever it might be to be able to give some voice to somebody who, you know, has been disempowered and also give voice to like reality and truth. Um, so that person understands that they're, you know, in fact, validated in, in their feelings and understanding of the situation. So I think, you know, the media could, could do that in a way that, again, they've never had to, to do that before with, with previous presidents. Right. Uh, Harper, you mentioned that 
Um, you saw some of these signs of watching Donald Trump candidate Donald Trump in 2016. Um, okay, he's been in the White House now for almost four years. Uh, have things gotten any better or, in fact, worse in terms of Trump's behavior? Um, definitely worse. Um, we predicted this in the book. Many of the authors talked about that these behaviors will worsen. This is typical of this type of personality. Again, when they're held accountable, they don't like that feeling. They want to escape that shame. So they will engage in worse behaviors over time as, as the pressure cooker builds. And I think we will continue to see this as the election approaches and even after the election, because he will not like the shame of losing. If he does lose, he will not like the shame of that. So his behaviors will even get worse. So you will see more volatility, more reactivity, more lying, um, more blaming. Um, and I don't see that that will get better anytime soon. Uh, Dr. Panning, uh, Jennifer, I saw that um, I was curious in reading both of your chapters uh, about the people, the clients that you see, the patients that you see, the people that you're helping through their uh, difficulties, um, and the stress that they feel, both the general anxiety disorder or the Trump anxiety disorder. Uh, to what extent do you feel that yourself, Jennifer? You know, usually as a therapist, we're able to maintain some professional objectivity. And let's say we have a personal history of an eating disorder or uh, PTSD. We may not you know, work with those clients because of our own personal um, tie-in with that. But I think uh, this is one of the first experiences where as a therapist, there was also a process of having to um, understand this for my own personal reasons and how to, how to cope with it while also assisting the majority of my clients through it. I mean, right after the 2016 election, it was, it felt like a, a week of, of crisis work. You know, people were, you know, understandably devastated and grieving and upset. And so was I, you know? And so having to um, be able to also be a little more human with my clients. And I think I've had certainly had clients seek me out because of my contributions to the book and knowing, you know, that they're struggling with uh, their sociopolitical stress with Trump anxiety and they're wanting a therapist who gets it and who's not going to just either be silent and, okay, that's sorry, that's hard, or be um, possibly a conservative belief system. So, you know, I think that's very, very powerful. Um, I think it's also quite difficult. It's been very stressful for therapists to contain our own you know, emotions around this and also help our clients. And I certainly think, you know, after COVID and um, all the failures in leadership with through this crisis, it's been even more so. Um, and also, you know, there's something comforting about being able to to help people and do my job in that way, too. Yeah. Harper, do you feel the same? Do you experience the same struggles? Yes, I, I agree with Jennifer. Very well said, um, Jennifer, that is pretty much how it's happened for me as well, being very triggered and traumatized myself with the election and having to try and maintain some sense of emotional balance all while helping others. But um, feeling that I have helped others, especially um, because I have experienced having been in an abusive relationship and talking, as Jennifer said, more openly about politics and about how I see this kind of narcissistic abuse playing out at a national level and people get it and, and can relate and at least feel heard, even if we can't affect anything ourselves very much. 
at least feeling there's a space to commiserate a bit over it is, is healing for some people. So I wanted to ask you both also about a couple of dangers that I see, given Donald Trump's uh, mental imbalance, if we say, whatever we want to call it, and, and his abusive behavior. Uh, the first danger, um, which I see, and I'd love to get your comments right or wrong, is that to a certain extent, he can normalize or has normalized abusive behavior on the part of others. Uh, if it's okay for me to engage in name calling and personal insults, you got a green light to do the same. So civil civility is like out the window, starting at the very top. I completely resonate with that. And, you know, I, I have two kids and when Trump won the election four years ago, they were uh, 10 and seven and they knew right away, mom, how did he win? He's not a nice person. They have a sense of, you know, internal moral compass of, of what's right and what's wrong. And I think for a lot of people, you know, myself included, that that lack, that egregious um, crossing those boundaries of acceptable behavior, of adult behavior, shall we say, of civility, of respect, um, even if you don't, you know, agree politically with each other, that you will treat each other kindly and with respect that that's been thrown out the window and that's very disturbing. And I, I, I you know, saw that, um, that Joe Biden tweeted to Trump's loss of his brother, uh, condolences. And so I think so did Senator Harris about just, you know, sorry about the loss of your brother, or thoughts and prayers are with you, things like that. I mean, that's an example I think of and a small example, right? And that maybe wouldn't have been a big thing in the past to have that happen. It would have been a normal thing. Like, yes, somebody, this is a loved one, you tell them that you're sorry and that your sympathies are with them. But those kind of typical, you know, moral um, behavior based on moral code is, is not typical with Trump. And that's been certainly very disturbing and um, awful to see. Uh, certainly a contrast to the way that Donald Trump has handled the loss of Joe Biden's son, Beau. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, Harper, is it the the danger then that the abnormal becomes normal? I, I would think so. We, we've seen this bar kind of shifted over towards these this in, the incivility and what, what again, if we think of a spectrum from antisocial to pro-social behaviors, and again, these are not diagnostic terms; these are just labels for for human behavior. If the if the national civility level has shifted over towards that antisocial end where we can be now more hateful, where we can be more racist, where we can be more um, disrespectful to each other, and that is just normal, that is just where the, the bar sits now, that is a problem because it's going to be difficult to recover from that. And that bar has been lowered to the point where, yeah, many of his followers feel completely free to scream and, you know, scream and swear at, at people who want them to wear a mask or something. I mean, it's just disheartening to see the level of, of behavior that is now seemingly acceptable, which I grew up in the 60s. I can't imagine screaming and swearing at people when I was a kid or a, seeing adults do that. That would have just been shocking. And, and so to see it now as, as normal somehow is, is, is just especially disheartening. Uh, and the other danger that I see, uh, and both of you have written about this too, is that um, we get so focused on Donald Trump's behavior 
on what crazy thing he has said, late, the latest crazy thing he has said, uh, either at one of his pseudo news con- so-called news conferences or one of his tweets, um, that we're distracted from things maybe that we ought to be worried about, right? Um, here, we're talking about Donald Trump's behavior instead of talking about climate change or uh, how to reopen schools, maybe something. Uh, so like sucking all the air out of the room. Uh, Jennifer, a real problem? Yes, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think it's easy, right? It's easy to react to something that's um, immoral and, and feels, you know, gross. We don't expect and unexpected. We don't expect the president to call members of Congress losers, for instance. That's just not, you know, in our normal expectations of a elected candidate. And so focusing, though, on that, you know, my friends will talk to me a lot about this topic because they know of, of my um, interest level in this and writing about it. And, you know, I say, well, the reason why he's doing it, it can always come down to one thing. It's because he is disturbed. Uh, we don't need to slap a, you know, diagnosis on him. We don't need to, we know enough to know that he's a disturbed man and then he's going to act in disturbed ways. And you're right. It distracts us from, from COVID, from climate crisis, from racial inequality and injustice in our country, from a lot of different things, but also it, it feels, it feels, we can feel deflated. We can feel helpless and like we're sucked into that dysfunction and it feels gross and, uh, you know, unproductive to be in that place. It's sort of a toxic effect, uh, Harper, right? Correct. Yeah. I know. I, I see this happen in relationships when I deal with clients about this. And I've seen it now happen at the national level with Trump. And this is classic behavior of the narcissistic personality is they like to divert from being held accountable. They like to change the subject. I call it zigzag arguing when I deal with with couples or relationship issues, because they may start talking about a certain subject, like whether somebody loaded the dishwasher or something. And with a narcissist, they zigzag away from that topic. And suddenly they're arguing about you know, some who took the trash out or something. And it's really hard to hold them accountable to the subject at hand. So often we have to literally force ourselves to back to the main issue. And with Trump, he just distracts everybody constantly with his tweets and his random subject changes and just complete irrationality and impulsivity. And it does, it sucks all the air out of the room because we can never move forward on any substantive change on any substantive policy discussion because there's no thoughtful lies responding by him. Uh, and it seems that there's also one thing lacking uh, around Donald Trump, which, again, may be um, expected or seen in all of these um, other blamers, at that there's they won't tolerate anybody around them who might tell them they're wrong, right? <laughs> like, look, look at the people left in the Trump White House, anybody uh, who had any independent point of view or dared disagree with Donald Trump is gone, long gone, right? Just Correct. surrounded by, for the most part, yes men. Correct. Yeah, that's very clear. You know, when you watch Trump, you see this all the time with with these other blamers, as I call them, because again, they they are very weak and insecure people, and they don't like to be challenged. They don't like to be questioned or held accountable. So they're going to get rid of anybody who's, who is, quote unquote, disloyal to them. And you hear that all the time when Trump speaks about people um, that he's very much judging on whether they're loyal to him. And that means they don't they don't challenge him. 
Um, and that's very dangerous in a president because a president needs to hear all sides of the, the argument. They need to really have a broad perspective and, and have people challenge them so that then there's a, a you know adequate airing of all the, the concerns. So very, very much a concern that I have about Trump if he's elected for four more years is we will have an even narrower set of inputs to him because he cannot hear anybody who disagrees with him. His mind is made up. And if you challenge him, you are out the door. Uh, Jennifer, yeah. Pepper, what you just said resonates a lot. I think that's one of the most scary and concerning things about the state of, of his White House right now is that, you know, perhaps in the past, you know, George W. Bush was not, you know, a favorite president, but you knew that there are some people on his cabinet and his administration that that had the expertise and had the ability to advise him and to work with him to help him. And Trump, you know, has his family members and his uh, other crew of, of yes men that are enabling that. And so that is very concerning. Uh, I'm going to come back to uh, or maybe where we started, where we were talking about the generalized uh, anxiety disorder, which is compounded by the Trump anxiety disorder, because I saw a figure just a day or so ago that two-thirds of Americans today are stressed out about the future. Uh, I guess you can relate that right back to Donald Trump, Jennifer. Absolutely. I think I, I saw something that was very high. I think 70% of Democrats and, and, and even 60% of Republicans are very concerned about the future of our country. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that Trump has created, has destroyed many things and um, also created a lot of problems that we're going to have to figure out a way to right the ship, so to speak. Um, and I think that's what the American people are wanting and looking for is just decency. Uh, Biden may not be, you know, the favorite pick of anyone they can pick to to be the next president, but there is a sense of, of decency, of compassion and empathy and of him listening to experts, not only within the White House, political experts, but also scientists and things that we need as a country to uh, fight COVID and figure out, you know, a better plan, a national plan, instead of, you know, denial and burying our heads in the sand. Well, Harper, that really speaks to a, a national trauma, right? When 70% of Americans are stressed out about where we're heading as a country. It does. That's it's a shocking number, but um, I certainly see it every day in my practice with people, you know, seeing that they're very uncertain about the future. And certainly, COVID is a very uncertain experience. We don't know when we're going to get a vaccine. We don't know how that's going to play out or how long this is going to last. But it's just been layered on. You know, the COVID pandemic is layered on this years of uncertainty with Trump and this chaos that he engenders. Again, very classic behaviors of a narcissistic person. Um, and it's, I think, very destabilizing and traumatizing to have a sense that our leaders are not working for us as a people. Um, there's a sense of betrayal in there that's traumatizing, it goes against our, our very natural need to feel that that we're on the same team, that we're, that we're not going to be uh, betrayed by somebody and certainly not by our president. And that that is very traumatizing. Well, on, on that point, um, Harper, I was struck by uh, a quote in your chapter in the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, again, first published in 2017, um, where you wrote, quote, it is frightening to consider that we have a president who may have lost the ability to care about the human lives 
he is charged with protecting. Uh, that ought to scare the hell out of us, right? It scared the hell out of me when I saw him coming on the scene because, again, I could identify in him immediately, just instinctively almost, this this lack of conscience that, that narcissists or other blamers have, the antisocial element there that they do not care about others. They are entirely, and he seems entirely self-interested. And that is frightening because he will not act in a way that is in the best interests of the, the citizens or of the world. And that, I, you, I think that's just fundamental. Again, we think about antisocial behavior. That is fundamentally an antisocial against society uh, behavior that is just just disheartening, the lack of empathy that he exhibits. And Jennifer, that must um, freak out a lot of people, I guess, that you see and we know. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the lack of empathy, right? Because people with his personality structure are unable to empathize, right? They're unable to self-reflect. And as, as Harper, you know, talked about the deflecting and the um, deflect, the blaming others and all that. And they're unable to accept responsibility and and have empathy. And, you know, we have a million examples of, of that behavior from him. You know, it is what it is with whatever, 160,000 Americans um, dead from COVID, you know, I accept no responsibility, all those types of things. They're very clear and blatant. And we do, you know, have, we have an expectation that our president is, is either going to protect us or not make things worse. And I do think we've seen that he's actually made things worse for, for many people in general um, and, and very specific groups as well. So l- let me just wrap here, if we can, by asking each of you, We've talked about a lot about the Trump anxiety disorder and some 50% or maybe higher, I think higher, uh, percentage of the American people feel that. Um, in, in, if, if the American people come to you, each of you, as a patient, as a client today, uh, and they admit they're really stressed out about uh, Donald Trump's lack of empathy and narcissism and paranoia and name-calling and all of the above. Um, What is your best advice to them? What's your best advice to the American people today to how to deal with uh, the anxiety disorder that Donald Trump has caused? Harper, you want to go first? Sure. Um, Yeah, this is is so difficult. We've touched on some of the things that I, you know, simple coping mechanisms that I advise. And Jennifer's mentioned just, you know, sleep and exercise and healthy lifestyle behaviors. I do work with them on managing their news intake and their social media intake. I work with people on mindfully uh, self-calming and managing their reaction to it. and I think I just work with people to normalize that that it does feel distressing. Of course, it's distressing because when we suffer this sense of betrayal, this sense of moral injury and moral outrage, that our leaders are not working in our best interest, I think we're going to be distressed. So I just normalize like heck with people so that they don't feel so different. They don't feel so abnormal that we are, I think, all traumatized by Trump at this point. Certainly agree with Harper. You're, you're making a lot of sense and similar approaches that I take with, with people that I work with. Um, you know, I've also told people, listen, um, it's going to be a lot of chaos and a lot of stress and anxiety until November 4th or thereabouts. Um, until then, I think we need to kind of tie loop and hang on and ground ourselves in whatever way we can, whether that's through, you know, healthy lifestyle 
behaviors, whether that's through focusing on the present moment, um, focusing on what we can control versus what we can't control. Like we can control, you know, our consumption of media. We can control if we're, you know, able to reach out to loved ones and, and do fun things and, you know, things that are both meaningful and meaningless, meaning meaningful like a, a cause or some volunteer work and meaningless, meaning just like silly, you know, uh, trashy TV that's just funny or funny cat videos or whatever floats your boat with that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all important coping, right? So I think certainly until we have a little more, we have some results from the election, um, it's going to be quite, quite stressful. And, you know, we have these layers of stress that, we're, that are still unresolved that we're still going to keep keep going with. Um, but our brains want certainty, right? We want to know, we want to be able to predict things. So being able to acknowledge we're not going to have that, that certainty right now, that's okay. It's just where things are at. And how do we cope in the best way we can and have a lot of compassion for ourselves and other people and having a lot of lowered expectations for ourselves as well, right? Because people are feeling guilty, they're feeling responsible, that they need to do more. And it's, it's very tough. And I think I've heard both of you say uh, that one other way of coping would be to do what uh, whatever we can as individuals uh, to make sure that we put the Trump anxiety disorder behind us by putting Donald Trump behind us on November 3rd. Yes, agreed. <laughs> I, am, I am actively working. Uh, I'm a precinct delegate here in Michigan, so I am actively working with my local neighbors to make whatever impact I can on that result. <laughs> so, Jennifer, get out and get involved, I guess, huh? This... Absolutely. But, and also, I would say, you know, I do have, you know, I have some PhD students. I work with a lot of college students that are so overwhelmed with trying to, you know, just do their thing and teach classes and lab work and all that. And they feel guilty. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay. You can do whatever you can do. That might be, you know, doing some text banking or phone banking or postcard writing. That might be just being able to, you know, donate to a cause. Whatever you can do, do it. But don't feel, you know, pressured or really, uh, you know, piling on the guilt that if you can't do more. Great conversation, Jennifer Panning and uh, Harper West. I feel better. I feel a lot more comfort uh, just talking to the two of you. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's it for today's podcast with Dr. Jennifer Panning and Harper West. Our latest episode in the dangerous case of Donald Trump. Before you go, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. So you are one of our regular members. You know how to do so. Pull up the Bill Press Pod, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Click on subscribe and you are in. And we also ask you to, in between podcasts to follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. Tell your friends to do the same. Again, thanks so much for listening. Stay strong, stay safe, and we will see you on our roundtable on Friday with our take on the Republican National Convention. Did they come anywhere close to being as good, as exciting, and as upbeat as the Democratic Convention? See you then.